19 dead students, two dead teachers, and the police force that failed them. The lead starts right now. 500 plus pages detailing what went wrong. On May 24, 2022, the Justice Department is out with its Uvalde report. Coming up, what families of victims killed that day say now about the long list of failures the Attorney General is calling out. Plus, Donald Trump's latest immunity defense. Presidents can do anything, even when they cross the line, written in all caps, online, in the middle of the night. Was it a message to his MAGA base or the U.S. Supreme Court? And Israel's disturbing find in Gaza during a search mission to find hostages taken by Hamas, the discovery at a cemetery, leading to a brand new investigation. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, live at New England College in Henniker, New Hampshire. The site of tonight's CNN Town Hall with GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley. I'll be moderating the town hall, and there is so much that New Hampshire voters want to ask the former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor before they go to vote in next Tuesday's primary. Much more to come on the race for 2024, but we're going to begin with our law and justice lead today, the 2022 Rob Elementary School massacre in Uvalde, Texas, that left 19 children and two teachers killed. It could have been stopped much sooner. And that's what the U.S. Department of Justice's nearly 600-page report into the botched police response found. Justice Department officials bluntly calling the 376 police officer response an unimaginable failure, a failure to take any action at all for 77 minutes, even though police could hear 45 rounds of gunshots ringing out in the classrooms, even though there were numerous 911 calls made by a child inside one of the classrooms. There were parents begging to run into the school and save their children who were forced to stay outside the building. And the Justice Department's review of this epic failure by police does not stop there. Imagine being told by police that your child survived the shooting when in fact he or she did not. That's just a sliver of the chaos, confusion, contradictions, and lack of accountability that unfolded minutes after the shooter was killed and continued in the days, months, and more than a year after. CNN's Shimon Prokopez, who has spent months investigating this deadly school shooting, has more on the Justice Department's scathing report and the reaction to it. A parent's worst nightmare and a national tragedy made worse now that responding officers are blamed for serious failures in Uvalde by the U.S. Justice Department in a damning new report. The law enforcement response at Robb Elementary School on May 24, 2022, and in the hours and days after, was a failure that should not have happened. I hope that the failures end today and the local officials do what wasn't done that day do right by the victims and survivors of Rob Elementary, terminations, criminal prosecutions. Bursts of gunfire, reports a teacher was shot, a desperate 911 call from a trapped student, major events that should have prompted police to step in immediately. Instead, it took 77 minutes to kill the gunman, leaving 19 children and two teachers dead. The long-awaited 575-page report is the fullest accounting of what happened highlighting the serious failures in the police response. These families didn't need 
400 or 500 page government report to learn that law enforcement failed them in a historic way. While quick to arrive to the scene, law enforcement stopped outside the classroom where the gunman was on a killing spree inside, their report found. I think the report concludes that had the law enforcement agencies followed generally accepted practices in an active shooter situation and gone right after the shooter to stop him, lives would have been saved and people would have survived. Countless other issues identified in the report after the gunman was killed, from the emergency medical response to how bereaved parents were told their children were dead. Many family members waited at the school for hours without status updates. At one point, hours after the shooting, an official incorrectly told families waiting for their children at the Civic Center that an additional bus of survivors was coming. It did not. Many family members of victims and survivors thankful for the federal report detailing what went wrong that horrific day, but they continue to demand accountability. We're grateful that we got what we have right now um, because it's probably the most updated information that any of us have gotten. This is probably the most extensive piece that we have about all of the failures that happened that day. What else does she possibly need to prosecute or to remove these people from their positions of power when they can't even do their jobs? The federal assessment does not make any recommendations for punitive steps for law enforcement. The Uvalde district attorney says she's continuing to investigate, but families say they want charges brought against the officers. I think we're going to continue fighting. We're going to continue fighting that, um, that some type of change is made uh, in honor of our kids. And Jake, you would think that something so horrific, such a horrific event would bring the community together, would bring the families the support that they need. It did not happen. And this report highlights that. For the families, for the families today, Jake, they hope that with this report now that all changes and perhaps there will be unity here and the support that they so much need will finally come. Shimon Prokopez in Uvalde, Texas, thank you so much for all your reporting uh, since that horrible day. Uh, let's bring in Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, whose congressional district uh, includes Uvalde. Uh, Congressman, uh, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said today that, quote, lives would have been saved and people would have survived if the Uvalde police had moved in sooner to kill the shooter. What is your reaction to the Justice Department report? Yeah, it's a tough day for us that live and, and work around Uvalde. Uh, first, I want to thank you for covering the story. I spoke with you the, the, the day after the shooting from Uvalde, and here we are nearly two years later, and you're still covering it. I'm grateful for that. Uh, you know, I spoke with uh, the Attorney General last week at length. I spoke with the Assistant Attorney General this week ahead of uh, the releasing of this report. And, you know, anytime there is a, a shooting, whether it's in Perry, Iowa, or whether it's in Maine, we, we are almost re-victimized in Uvalde. And, and today's report has certainly opened up a lot of, of, lot of uh, old scars. But I also think it's important for us to acknowledge the, the, the mishaps, acknowledge the lack of communication, the lack of policy, the lack of reaction, understand that, and then fix it. And then find a way to make sure that what happened in Uvalde never happens again. Uh, listed in the Justice Department report um, are then-school police chief Pete Arredondo, uh, then-acting Uvalde police chief Mariano Pargas, 
And Uvalde County Sheriff Ruben Nolasco, uh, Sheriff Nolasco is running for re-election. All three of them singled out for failing to lead. I have to ask just off the off the top, how on earth does Sheriff Nolasco still have a job? You know, that's uh, that's up to the county of Uvalde to determine who who they want to lead. I, I will say this, and no one's really talking about this piece to it, Jake, is these officers that responded in some cases, you know, uh, uh, an officer's wife was in the it was in the classroom. Their cousins were in the classroom. Their neighbors were in the classroom. It wasn't as if they 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 weren't connected. The community is very small and very tight knit. So there was a failure on many cases. But this this sentiment that, you know, some folks were cowards and didn't want to go in. That's the furthest thing from the truth. But there were a lot of breakdowns. And how do we fix it? One of the discussions I had with the uh, with the attorney general was out of this report, there's a lot of recommendations. And we have already started to work together, my office with the Department of justice on how we fix some of these things, uh, you know, with grants, with federal funding, talking to local leadership. And like you mentioned, how do you bring maybe new leadership in to fix to fix uh, the ideas as well? Right. But obviously, the, the big lesson learned in 1999 uh, during the Columbine shooting was uh, the previous law enforcement way of thinking that you you wait outside doesn't work, that that what law enforcement needs to do is run in immediately. And, and that didn't happen. Uh, this is 23 years after Columbine. I have to ask also, do you have any idea why the Uvalde County District Attorney, Christina Mitchell, has not filed any charges uh, against any of the law enforcement officers who failed that day? Is, is there not a relevant criminal statute? I do not know why she hasn't, but I do know, you know, there was a reason why the the mayor at the time reached out to the Department of Justice and requested this independent review, if there will, because there was a lot of infighting. And I think it's very important. And, you know, I applaud the Department of Justice for putting together this very comprehensive minute by minute account of what occurred. Uh, you know, that, that'll never bring the children back. But we do have to learn from this. And once again, we have to find real tangible solutions that bring Bring that, that, that make sure this doesn't happen again. And it can't just be rhetoric, right? And we can't just wait for the next shooting. I, I'll also say this too, is since the Uvalde shooting, we've seen several school shootings. We've seen several different incidences where you have seen local law enforcement, if you will, almost learn from what happened in Uvalde and run to the fire. So I hope that continues to be the standard throughout our country. Lastly, whether it's red flag laws or raising uh, the age where somebody can purchase or even possess a, a firearm, is there any gun restriction uh, that you support now that you didn't support before Uvalde that might have helped prevent this? You know, I, I continue to look for, for uh, common sense things. Uh, I, I do not support a, a, uh, a weapons ban of any sort. I do not support a universal background check of any sort. I do not support anything that infringes upon the Constitution or, or uh, prevents those from having due process. I do, however, support, and I do think we can work in a manner that protects the Constitution and protects our children. And that is the space I'm looking for to operate in. I think there's a lot of people, more and more people, Jake, have a direct story of, of you know, a shooting in their district or their state. And I do think there is, there is a, a growing number of lawmakers that do want to have sensible solutions. I'm committed to that. And I look forward to continue to work with my colleagues and the White House to find reasonable solutions. 
Why don't you support universal background checks? If people have to go through background checks to buy a firearm at a gun store, uh, why shouldn't they have to go through it uh, at a gun show, especially when there are clearly individuals? We've seen a lot of shootings in the last few years from individuals who clearly are not right, and a basic background check uh, might have prevented tragedy. Yeah, it's about due process. It's about how long. And in some cases, you know, uh, a backlog of a, of a background check will prevent someone, a, a, a person, from legally purchasing, purchasing a firearm. So that's what I don't want to see happen, is a person who's legally abiding by the rules, doing everything they can, not be able to purchase a firearm in a reasonable amount of time because there's this excess backlog. I did, however, support the Safer's Community Act. I'm very proud of that. And that extended uh, uh, background checks for minors. And since that piece of legislation has signed into law, there's been over 400 similar Uvalde shootings that have been prevented. And I think that's an opportunity that we can grow on that type of legislation. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas. Good to see you, sir. As always, here you, in Jake. New Hampshire, we are counting down to tonight's uh, CNN Town Hall with uh, former Governor Nikki Haley. She's facing new political attacks from Donald Trump. But this is not Iowa. How those attacks might play here in New Hampshire. I'm going to talk to a Republican insider in this state next. And we're back with our 2024 lead. Cue that music, the election jam. In just a few hours, I will moderate a Republican presidential town hall with Nikki Haley. Some recent polls in this state have shown the former South Carolina governor within striking distance of Donald Trump. A win for Haley here on Tuesday could reshape the presidential race as we know it and a loss would certainly bring more uncertainty about whether any Republican candidate is capable of mounting any sort of serious challenge to Donald Trump. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is in nearby Manchester, New Hampshire. Jeff, is Nikki Haley ramping up attacks and criticisms of Donald Trump as we get closer to this New Hampshire primary? Jake, she's definitely responding much more forcefully to the attacks that really have been coming fast and furiously ever since the Iowa caucuses. Uh, I was with Nikki Haley uh, earlier today, and I'm not sure I've seen her that aggressive and sharp in her responses to the former president. She said, if he's going to lie about me, I'll tell the truth about him. Trump says things. Americans aren't stupid to just believe what he says. The reality is, who lost the House for us? Who lost the Senate? Who lost the White House? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. Nikki Haley will win every single one of those back for us. I've proven that. So that's an electability argument there, responding specifically to the former president, who last night here in New Hampshire said that a vote for Nikki Haley is a vote for Joe Biden. So she clearly is trying to make that electability argument as well as pushing back against some of his, his uh, false television ads on Social Security, the border, and much more, Jake. And Jeff, a few weeks ago, it looked like she had real momentum here in New Hampshire. What are you hearing from voters in New Hampshire today? Well, talking to a lot of voters out there, Jake, there's no doubt that the undeclared voters in New Hampshire, about 40 percent of the state's electorate, uh, is the... Uh, the central part of her campaign strategy. But at the town halls and rallies she's been having, we're also finding many Republicans, former Trump supporters, who are also very interested in supporting her. Here's a conversation with Susan Rice in Rochester last night. I really like Nikki Haley. Um, I am a staunch Republican. I have been my entire life. And um, I think it's time to have a woman as the president. Um, I like her um, foreign policies. I like the fact that um, she has a, a, a 
good understanding of our southern border and what she wants to do for that. So that is someone who voted for Trump twice in 2016 and again in 2020. So sort of belying the argument that Trump's been making that uh, Nikki Haley is, is trying to infiltrate the primary, in his words, by only having moderates vote in it. There is no doubt that many Republicans also interested in turning the page. The question, of course, is just how many. But Jake, without a doubt, five days before the New Hampshire primary, an incredibly different phase, a more aggressive phase from Nikki Haley. Jake? Yeah, I, I also talked to a two-time Trump voter uh, who seems intrigued by Nikki Haley and a little tired of Donald Trump, though she still doesn't know how she's going to vote. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Let's discuss now with a prominent figure in Granite State politics, former New Hampshire Republican Party chairman Steve Dupree, who is supporting Nikki Haley. He was also a senior advisor to John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. Steve, good to see you again. In this 2024 Republican primary, you first supported Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, then he dropped out, then you switched to Nikki Haley. Why her? And do you want to hear her go after Trump more directly going forward, including in, in tonight's town hall? Well, I think she should. When you're attacked, you need to respond. She needs to show she can be as forceful, but do so without being petty and insulting, which I think helps distinguish her. Um, I think with Nikki Haley, what you get is not only turning the page on older politicians, but somebody who can deliver on a conservative agenda without the chaos, without the drama, without the tweets. And I think she's getting a good base of support among Republicans who say, hey, I like some of the ideas that Donald Trump espoused as president, but I want somebody who gets it done and doesn't pick needless fights. So let's turn the page. I'm hearing that from Republicans and then independents, as you know, gave a big margin to McCain in 2000, helped bring him back in 2008. She's appealing to them as well as somebody who is just beyond all this drama and chaos. Uh, Nikki Haley said she would not participate uh, in proposed debates by CNN, by ABC News. Uh, so those were canceled. She said she wouldn't do it unless Donald Trump were there. And obviously, Donald Trump is refusing to debate anyone. Um, do you agree with Haley's move? Was that the right thing to do? Well, while I feel sorry and I love those debates and I have a number of RNC colleagues coming up to witness the New Hampshire primary, I think it was a smart strategic move because it basically gave airtime to a candidacy that I think is dying and that's Governor DeSantis's. Why let a candidate who's so far behind in the polls not really competing in New Hampshire have airtime to attack you? I think she's tactically and strategically, it's very smart to say, I only want to debate Joe Biden or Donald Trump. So even though it doesn't make for a uh, great opportunity to get a broader audience. I think tactically it was the right decision to not give De Governor DeSantis any more airtime as his campaign seems to be faltering. Well, you can say it's faltering, but he did beat her in, in, uh, in Iowa, right? He did beat her in Iowa, but he put almost all of his eggs in that basket. She really didn't play there until the polls looked like she might pull off a second. I'm sure she was disappointed to not quite make that one. I think that would have given her a boost, but she certainly has put the effort in here. And this is a very important state. This state's as important for her as Iowa was for Governor DeSantis. A couple of weeks ago, Chris Christie was in third place uh, here in New Hampshire. Then he pulled out. Uh, who do you think um, he, he was polling at 12 percentage points in, in New Hampshire before he dropped out? Um, common sense might say that those votes 
will go to DeSantis uh, in some ways because he's openly said he would not accept a vice presidential job offer from Trump. Nikki Haley has not. Uh, Chris Christie made that argument many times. Um, you support Haley. You're also anti-Trump. What are you hearing from Christie voters? Uh, where are they going? And to be honest, I really love Governor Christie, and I think he would have made a fine president, I think, because he just was attacking the base of Trump voters so aggressively that that created a ceiling on his vote. I think the overwhelming majority of those voters are going to go to Nikki Haley. They're not only people who probably don't care for President Trump, but they want somebody, again, who's not full of the chaos. So I I think virtually all those votes will go towards Haley. That's going to be a tremendous boost for her. Steve Dupree, good to see you again. Thanks so much. Nikki Haley is going to make her case to the voters tonight in the CNN Republican Presidential Town Hall. In this room I'm sitting in right now, I'm going to moderate that discussion. Tonight here at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN, on CNN Max. Coming up next on the lead, the all-caps immunity defense from Donald Trump, posted on Truth Social in the wee small hours of the night. Who did he really want to read that message? Perhaps a U.S. Supreme Court justice? Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Continuing with our law and justice lead today, E. Jean Carroll finished testifying today in the New York trial to decide how much money in additional damages, if any, former President Donald Trump must pay her. It has been calmer in the courtroom today, perhaps because Donald Trump isn't there. He's in Florida attending the funeral of his mother-in-law. E. Jean Carroll is asking for more than $10 million in damages in addition to the $5 million that the court previously awarded her. Last year, as you may recall, a jury found that Trump did sexually abuse Carol in a department store dressing room in 1996. And then subsequently, he defamed her while publicly denying her claims and viciously attacking her credibility. Speaking of Trump, late last night, 1.59 a.m. Eastern time to be exact, Mr. Trump authored a potentially incriminating all caps post on social media. I'll spare you the most of the entire 147 word rant where Trump argues presidents should enjoy absolute immunity from all criminal punishment. But this line does seem particularly important. Quote, even events that cross the line must fall under total immunity. That's in all caps, as I noted. That tirade just one week after Trump's attorney argued in a court of law that a U.S. president cannot be prosecuted for ordering, ordering SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political opponent unless first impeached and convicted by the Senate. Let's bring in our expert CNN team. Uh, Joan, uh, this 
Truth Social post ends with, God bless the Supreme Court. So one thinks maybe it's aimed at the Supreme Court. What might Supreme Court justices be thinking right now as they prepare to, to take up this immunity claim after the appeals court showdown? Uh, good to see you, Jake. And you know, no matter what legal proceeding Donald Trump is undergoing, the Supreme Court, all caps, is always on his mind. But the Supreme Court is also watching what's happening on the immunity question in the appellate court. It knows the contours of this case because both sides presented the general outlines in December when uh, uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith tried to get the Supreme Court to intervene early. Uh, they sent it back, of course, had the appellate court uh, look at it. And I suspect that many of the justices are aware of the kinds of legal issues that emerged last week when the three-judge panel heard the case. And I think they would extend from, you know, even the most basic question of, do courts have jurisdiction at this moment to look at the immunity question? Remember that we're in the middle of proceedings, and sometimes these uh, appeals of uh, discrete issues have to wait to the very end of a case. Uh, it's an inter interim appeal here, and uh, the lower court is hearing it, but we know that the lower court was also struggling with the jurisdictional question, as the Supreme Court itself might. And then on the merits, Jake, I'm sure that they would have similar questions about whether Okay, so if he uh, lacks total immunity, as his lawyers are arguing, what defenses might be left to him? So bottom line, Jake, they could go narrow, they could go broad, or they could say, we will decide no case before it's time. And Paula, you note that of the 147 words in this 159 AM Truth Social post, the key word is absolute, as in absolute immunity. Explain why. Yeah, well, look, presidents enjoy immunity from many lawsuits. That's how they're able to govern while in office. It's how they can conduct wars and implement policy without having personal liability. But the limits of this when it comes to arrest or criminal prosecution have never been tested because no former president has ever been charged with a crime. And here, as I noted, you have to be able to govern. So the first issue here is, well, is what Trump was doing in and around election subversion part of his official duties? Well, the special counsel says absolutely not. But Trump's lawyers argue, well, if you prosecute uh, a president for this, that'll open a Pandora's box. You could go after Biden uh, for what's going on at the border. But again, the special counsel says, no, there has to be limits. If there's no limits on this immunity, then you effectively have a king. Now, one of Trump's own former lawyers, Tim Parlatori, he told me exactly who he thinks has the better argument here. Let's take a listen. On this point, uh, Jack Smith does have the better argument. Um, you know, I, I never uh, really bought into the idea of immunity being a winning argument here. Uh, it is something, however, that I think is going to be helpful in his uh, plans to try and delay the trial. Yeah, and the judges considering this issue right now, they seem skeptical of this idea of absolute immunity, which is why they were tossing out these hypotheticals about SEAL Team 6 political assassinations. Now, Trump's lawyer said that possibly Trump could be prosecuted, but only after he is impeached. But Trump seeming to suggest here that, no, murder would not be actually something you come after a president for under any circumstances or through any process. And Elena, this was a 1.59 a.m. post. Do you think it reached Trump's intended audience? You know, I do. I think that this post was not really about um, legal 
you know, issues, but more about a political strategy. We've seen Donald Trump use this and implement this type of tactic before. He's trying to get ahead of a potential ruling uh, by posting about it on social media and arguing um, that he thinks he is uh, or deserves absolute immunity. And then we've seen in poll after poll that this type of tactic does work at, with, at, with his base. Um, and we've also seen Donald Trump, you know, his voluntary court appearances, um, railing against his legal issues repeatedly online as well as on the campaign trail, it does very well with his base. But I think the question, Jake, that still remains is how will this uh, be viewed by general or potential general election voters? We know that many people are increasingly growing concerned about whether Donald Trump, if elected, in 2024 would abuse his power and abuse the office. And this is another argument that they can point to. It's also ammunition um, being given to President Joe Biden, who, as we've seen, has increasingly ramped up his attacks, um, likening uh, Trump to being a threat to democracy. And so this is more uh, ammunition for him as well. And one thing I also just want to point out that I find very interesting is that uh, this is not a ruling or a case that is brought before the Supreme Court yet. So I think that um, this kind of shows that Donald Trump may intend to lose or may anticipate that he's going to lose at the federal um, appeals level. And so this is him also just trying to get around that and reframe the narrative to in the court of public opinion and not the court of law. And, Joan, bigger picture, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, probably does not want to be thrown into election disputes. At least Chief Justice Roberts probably doesn't want that to happen. What might they be thinking overall about all these Trump cases and the larger role they're, they're assuredly going to play in the election? You know, Jake, you're exactly right. The Chief Justice is known for his caution, known to want to avoid the politics of election litigation, and especially known to want to avoid anything that has to do with Donald Trump and his troubles. But I think at this point, given this case and given the other case that's now pending before the justices, testing whether he need, he can be removed from the ballot because of his role in the uh, January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol. I think the justices are ready to seize the moment. They've accepted the fact that they're going to be in the middle of it. And I think the schedule that they set out for the other case, the one involving uh, whether Trump can be removed from ballots, shows that they're ready to act quickly. And I think once the D.C. Circuit rules on this immunity question, we'll probably see some quick action, which, frankly, as I said, could involve not taking it right now for jurisdictional uh, reasons. But at least I think they understand that only those nine justices can have the final say on the law. And Donald Trump certainly recognizes that. And that's why he said, Jake, God bless the Supreme Court. All right. Thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. We know you hear this next one all the time. The federal government is headed for a shutdown. I feel like I have told you that a hundred times over the last five years. A deadline is coming up tomorrow. The negotiations do seem to be a little bit different this time. We're going to go live to Capitol Hill next. Back to our politics lead, but not the presidential race. And yes, this is a story that I have told you countless times over the past 10 years. And I can't believe I have to tell it to you again. But the U.S. government is supposed to run out of money tomorrow. And the U.S. government could shut down, although Congress is currently working on a short-term fix right now. Let's go to Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, I can't believe we're doing this again. It's just staggeringly incompetent and disgraceful. All right, moving on. This afternoon, the Senate passed a bill to keep the government open until early March. What's the House going to do? 
Well, they're about to pass it, Jake, and guess what? They're going to have to do this again in just over a month's time because this is just a short-term spending bill. It would keep the government open until early March, and at that point, Congress will have to decide once again, shut down the government, pass another short-term extension, or actually pass legislation to keep the government open until the end of the current fiscal year, which ends at the end of September. Remember, they were supposed to pass this back on October 1st, but Congress couldn't get a deal. They passed a short-term extension. That added to the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, the then-speaker, because members on the far right did not like the deal that he cut to allow the government to stay open. He had to step aside. Mike Johnson came in, passed another short-term extension. Johnson said he wouldn't move on any more short-term extension, but guess what? He had to do it facing another shutdown deadline. So they're kicking the can down the road. They're about to pass it in the House, and then once again, have to figure out what to do come February as they run into that early March deadline, Jake. You said kicking the can down the road. Drink. In the bigger picture, you have new reporting about President Trump getting involved to try to scuttle this possible deal on immigration. Democrats and Republicans in the Senate working hard on a deal, and Trump wants to blow it up. Yeah, and this has really caused a new wrinkle in these very complex negotiations that have been going on for months. Senators, a handful of senators have been trying to cut a major immigration deal, put more restrictions on the southern border of Mexico. This is not going to go as far as what House Republicans wanted, but it will go much further than what many Democrats are willing to accept. Why? Because Republicans have insisted any changes to border laws must happen first before they agree to greenlight billions of dollars in more aid to Ukraine at this critical time in in the war against Russia. That has led to these hard-fought negotiations. But just last night, Donald Trump posted on social media that they should not accept any deal that he considers less than perfect, which is causing a lot of concerns within the ranks and worries among Republicans that that could be enough to sway Republicans to vote against any deal. That, I think, is going to weigh in heavily. But will it be harder to get behind a deal if President Trump opposes it? I think so. I think that uh, you can see the increasing number of uh, senators that have been endorsing President Trump. And uh, it's got the whole, uh, that's not that far away now. Uh, the discussion six, eight months ago would be different, so that's going to weigh more heavily as well. There are some folks, without question, that don't want to get any solution to a problem because they think that might help the other side. You think Donald Trump has influence on Republicans? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jake, this comes at an absolutely critical time because Senate leaders are pushing hard to try to get this immigration deal along with aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, aid to Taiwan in one massive package. Bring it to the floor as soon as next week. And there are, the negotiators believe they are moving closer to reaching a deal. But there could be a situation. A deal is reached. Donald Trump calls it insufficient. Many Republicans revolt against it. Perhaps they could get it out of the Democratic-led Senate. But where does it go in the Republican-led House? That is leading to major questions because Mike Johnson, the speaker there, has indicated that he wants the Republican plan. Perhaps he's not indicating he's willing to go is where the senators are willing to go at this moment. But if Donald Trump pushes him to oppose it, many Republicans in the House will also oppose it. And then that will lead to questions about whether anything at all can get done. As, of course, this issue, immigration's front and center in the campaign, as Donald Trump has seized on it and is not eager on giving Joe Biden a critical campaign victory, legislative victory, in the heat of this campaign. Jake. And Mono, they get pay they get paid whether they they accomplish anything or not, right? That's absolutely right. They could pass legislation to change that, but okay. I'm not expecting that to happen anytime soon. I was, I was just I was just checking. Most people, when they have jobs where they don't accomplish anything, they don't get they don't they get fired. Anyway, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. We're going to keep an eye on that vote.
uh, on Capitol Hill and the chances of a potential government shutdown. We're going to be right back. In a law and justice lead, a lawyer and confidant of Hunter Biden uh, appeared on Capitol Hill today for a closed-door interview with lawmakers. It's part of the Republican-led impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Let's bring in CNN's Annie Grayer, who is following the investigators' investigations into Hunter Biden and the committees investigating him. Annie, what are lawmakers hoping uh, to learn from Hunter Biden's uh, lawyer, Kevin Morris, who we just saw on the screen? Well, Jake, Republicans have had a lot of questions about the relationship between Morris and Hunter Biden, so much so they've made it part of their impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. And that's because Morris has loaned loaned Hunter millions of dollars to help Hunter pay his taxes, and Republicans have a lot of questions about that. Morris met behind closed doors with both Democrats and Republicans today for around six hours. And what's almost to be expected at this point, Jake, is Republicans and Democrats came out with pretty different views about what Moore said. James Comer, who's the oversight chair, said that he still has a lot of questions about these loans Morris made to Hunter and even went as far as to say that Morris, who's a Democratic donor, uh, made these loans as part of a way to curry favor with the president. Now, Jamie Raskin, who um, is the top Democrat on the oversight committee, had an entirely different uh, picture to paint and said that there was no wrongdoing here, that Morris talked about his long relationship um, with Hunter and that there was never any conversations with the White House or the president about these loans. And he fully expects Hunter to pay him back. So this is just another example of how closed door testimony, each side comes out kind of with their own story. And I think it's just going to be another example of where I'm going to have to wait to get the transcript to really get the full picture here. Yeah, we're waiting for those transcripts, Chairman Comer. Release them. Uh, The Republican effort to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for refusing to testify uh, behind closed doors uh, as they requested, that has been put on hold as negotiations over his testimony continue with Hunter Biden's legal team. Uh, Where do those negotiations stand right now? Those negotiations are ongoing, and there has been a lot of back and forth here. So just to take you back to last week, Republicans were planning to move forward on holding Hunter Biden in criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to sit for a closed-door deposition. Hunter had maintained he only wanted to testify publicly. But then Hunter's lawyer, Abby Lowell, sent a letter to Congress and said, hey, issue us a new subpoena and let's talk about how we can make Uh, testimony happened. So I'm told from sources that a new subpoena hasn't been issued yet, but the both sides are engaging. And Jake, if Republicans are able to get testimony from the president's son, who is so crucial to their investigation into the president, it would be a really big deal. But we just have to see where this ends up. All right, Andy Greer, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up inside that detailed report out today from the U.S. Justice Department, on the tragic Uvalde school massacre, the Attorney General Merrick Garland held a news conference. Uh, then he sat down with CNN's Evan Pettis. What Garland said about investigating this tragedy versus being there in Uvalde and seeing where such young victims and teachers lost their lives. His exclusive interview with CNN is next. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
at this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead on Jake Tapper, live from Manchester, New Hampshire. Five days ahead of this state's crucial primary, we are on the site of tonight's CNN Town Hall with former Governor Nikki Haley. The GOP frontrunner Donald Trump has been with characteristic subtlety reminding voters of Haley's Indian heritage. He has been falsely suggesting she cannot be elected president because her immigrant parents were not citizens at the time of her birth. He has been using her first given name, Nimarada, which he misspelled, instead of her middle name, Nikki, which she has gone by since she was a little kid. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk to a House Democrat who has experienced similar taunts against him in his life. He's going to come to her defense. Plus, one of the most pressing questions to consider if the war between Hamas and Israel ever ends, what should happen the day after to Gaza? The proposed deal pushed by the Biden White House that Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu is already turning down. And leading this hour, the Justice Department out today with its report on the Uvalde massacre detailing a list of failures on May 24th, 2022, when an 18-year-old gunman made his way inside Robb Elementary School. Young students and teachers were left trapped in a classroom with a killer more than an hour after the first officers arrived on the scene. Instead of confronting the gunman, the Justice Department found that officers asked and waited for more responders, more equipment. And again, instead of storming into the classroom, police were waiting around for a set of keys, keys to open a classroom door that was probably already unlocked. Not to mention the terrified parents left waiting outside for hours, wanting to run into the school, told they couldn't, learning little to nothing about the status of their children. Just hours after the Justice Department released its report on Uvalde, Attorney General Merrick Garland sat down with CNN, specifically with CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez, who joins me now live from Uvalde. And Evan, you asked Attorney General Garland about what he believes are the most significant failures of that day. What did he have to say? Well, Jake, everything that could go wrong that day did go wrong. This is obviously something that families uh, have been very frustrated with, uh, the idea that uh, they feel there's been a lack of accountability as a result of everything that happened that day. And the attorney general, you know, really brought back a lot of those feelings by coming here and unveiling this report, 570 pages, that really does expose everything that, uh, that, could, have, that could have been done and that could have potentially saved lives. Listen to the attorney general talk about this. I had long ago read the entire report, but right. being there, seeing how small the two schoolrooms are and their, their attachment to each other, the holes in the wall left by the shooters, the places where the children t tried to hide. Uh, it's just a different experience, uh, both in terms of understanding why tactics were wrong, but also in terms of understanding what happened. Uh, we then went to the uh, murals uh, that are painted of each of the children who died. And we saw joyous figures. You know, they intentionally painted them to express the children's joy of life and, and, and enormous energy. And you know, just think about the, the difference between that and what happened to them. And then after that, we went and met with the families who, as I said, expressed pain, anger, 
and every human emotion that you would expect. What, uh, one of the things, you know, reading this report, uh, nearly 600 pages, uh, you know, some of the things that stand out, you know, 45 rounds sh fired by this shooter while law enforcement is present, uh, you know, uh, families being told that their, their loved ones are alive when they were not. Uh, you know, the false information that was coming from those press conferences, beginning with the one by Governor Abbott and, and then going through the Department of Public Safety. Uh, do you, looking at what you see in this report, do you believe that anyone who was involved in, in that response still belongs serving in law enforcement right now? Look, so the Justice Department doesn't have uh, jurisdiction over these kind of personnel questions. What we can do and what we've done in this uh, report is to identify minute by minute, sometimes second by second, what was happening, uh, what the failures of uh, leadership of law enforcement on the scene were, as well as the failures of preparation in advance and of the aftermath of the way uh, things uh, went afterwards in terms of communications, in terms of uh, medical assistance and when it was provided. Um, and in terms of the, uh, the misinformation thereafter. And I think it's now up to the community, uh, the state and local officials to make the appropriate determinations. Jake, one of the uh, lingering things that, uh, that happened, that, that remains in this community, is this idea that uh, law enforcement circled the wagons, they were trying to protect their own uh, instead of protecting those children. And so uh, there is a, a still a pending investigation by the local district attorney. That's something that uh, certainly you hear from the families who met with the attorney general. They met with Vanita Gupta, the associate attorney general. Uh, they spent two hours answering their questions. I think that's one of the remaining big, big uh, questions that, that, law, that, that the families of those victims have is, is uh, could perhaps there be charges against anybody as a result of what happened? Um, and certainly uh, for some of those law enforcement people who are still working here in this community, Jake, uh, some of them have gotten promoted. All of those things are obviously keeping, uh, keeping a lot of this alive for the, the family members. Jake? Yeah, the, sher the sheriff is still in office and running for re-election. Evan Pettis in Uvalde, Texas, thanks so much. Joining us now, Joshua Koskoff. Uh, he is a lawyer who represents many of the victims' families. Thanks for joining us. So you, along with the families you represent, you were there listening to the U.S. Attorney Merrick Garland detail uh, a series of major failures in, in leadership and police tactics and preparedness and much more. Uh, we know this review mainly reaffirmed what the families already knew was there anything in this review that surprised you or any of the families? Uh, thank you, Jake. Uh, no, not, not really. I mean, the bottom line is, was clear to all of us, no more so than to the families the day of the shooting, which was that this was a historic failure of law enforcement in what is really their most and that's to protect our children at a time of crisis. So they already knew that. And some of and, and the, the report, as your uh, colleague said, is is yes, is 570 pages. So nobody's read it yet. Um, but the level of detail certainly uh, was meeting. So um, Uvalde County District Attorney Christina Mitchell has not fiz finished her inquiry into what happened that day. Uh, she hasn't charged any law enforcement personnel with anything. Are there any specific criminal charges that you would want filed against anybody in law enforcement? Well, I think it's not really my place as a lawyer to comment on that, but I would say that 
uh, there's a lot of frustration, not just specifically with the local authorities and her failure to be transparent. There, there's the impression, Jake, of a cover-up. Uh, whether or not there is or not, we don't know. But families in this situation should not get that impression. And I think that's what the DOJ did well today, was they made it clear to these families that they were taking their case very seriously. There was no sense of a cover-up. And if anything, there was so much detail that setting to the families. Uh, that's not what they're getting here in Texas at the local level. Are you surprised it's taken so long uh, for the district attorney there in Texas uh, to either file charges or announce that no one's going to be charged, given that this happened in May 2022? Um, we're almost coming up to the two-year anniversary. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the proof is in uh, the DOJ report. I mean, the federal government is not known to operate at lightning speed. And here I'm sitting, I have a 570 page report right here uh, that was conducted over the course of months. So I think it really shines a light on the failure of the DA to move with, uh, with speed and, and deliberate speed. I mean, it, it's, it was gonna take some time, but I think there's a lot of about that. Are there other legal avenues that you and the victim's families are pursuing? Well, right now, you know, we have to keep uh, all options on the table. So we're looking at all angles of this, Jake. One of my frustrations is they didn't focus at all on the acquisition of this weapon by this 18-year-old kid. Uh, and just a reminder, this was an 18-year-old, a kid who just turned 18, who single-handedly held off over 300 federal officers who were heavily armed. And I think the lead that's been buried here how did an 18-year-old kid so easily access an AR-15? Not just one yet. He actually bought two of them within a week and not set off any bells. So that's a concern that we lose track of what could have made a difference here. Joshua Koskoff, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you very much, Joshua Koskoff, thank you so much. We're, we're, we're and our, and our, our thoughts and, and, uh, and our prayers and our and our. Condolences to the families. I cannot imagine uh, their grief. Uh, we have some breaking news for you on Capitol Hill. Uh, the results are in on that House vote. Congress did stop a government shutdown again, but only temporarily again. How long will your lawmakers keep repeating this process? CNN's Manu Raju is on the Hill chasing a reaction. We're going to check back in with him next. Breaking news in our politics lead. The U.S. government will not shut down. At least, not this time. CNN's Manaraj is on Capitol Hill for us where the U.S. Senate and just now the U.S. House passed the legislation to keep the government open until early March. And Manu, it took Democratic votes to make the difference in the House, huh? Yeah, in fact, the, the vote was 314 to 108. There were just 107 Republicans who voted for this bill, and there were 207 Democrats who voted for the bill. It was only barely a Republican majority supported. That is, that is there was 106 Republicans voted against it, and that is a critical threshold for the Speaker. Typically, they want to move legislation that only gets a majority of the majority. They barely cleared that threshold because of opposition on the right flank, Jake. Many Republicans not happy with the Speaker. 
speakers deal cutting on this issue, but they'll have another day to fight since they're simply kicking the can down the road until March and will once again have to deal with government funding or face another shutdown threat because Congress has been unable to pass year-long spending bills and will have to deal with this again now that they're kicking down the can down the road for just a handful of more weeks, Jake. Yeah, it used to be Republicans would call it the Haskert rule, which meant is that they would only bring up a bill if they knew it was going to get a majority of the Republican majority. The Haskert rule is a thing of the past. It was named after uh, former House Speaker and serial child molester Dennis Haskert. Um, Manu, there's new reporting also on a deal that you have to have Hunter Biden come for a deposition in February. Yeah, this is significant. This has been going back and forth for about a couple months now. Now that Hunter Biden had refused to go behind closed doors, but facing a threat of the House holding him in contempt after he defied a subpoena to appear behind closed doors in December. They were planning to move forward in a contempt vote in the House to refer him for prosecution for contempt. Now Hunter Biden has agreed to sit down behind closed doors on February 28th with the House Oversight Committee and the House Judiciary Committee. Those two committees have been trying to have been investigating Joe Biden, pushing forward on an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden, trying to establish any sort of connection between Hunter Biden and his business dealings and his father's actions while in office, trying to show that Joe Biden profited off of Hunter Biden's business dealings. They do not have proof to show that any of that has actually existed, but they believe that Hunter Biden could shed new light into all of this. Will he do any of this? Will he provide any of that information? That is a different question. Hunter Biden has said publicly, but not under oath, that there was no nefarious dealings with his father. He said his father was not involved with his business whatsoever and had refused going behind closed doors because of concerns that Republicans would distort his testimony, leak details of it, and not provide a full picture. But now that he has faced this contempt threat, deciding he will go behind closed doors, that again will be a high key moment as Republicans are still trying to move forward to impeach Joe Biden. They don't have the votes yet, but will Hunter Biden's testimony change things? That is going to be a big question in the weeks ahead. Jake. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill with two big breaking news stories for us. Thanks so much. Coming up, a Democrat coming to the defense of Nikki Haley as she faces an attack from Donald Trump focused on her heritage as an Indian American. That Democrat tells me he has a unique perspective on the dangers of this kind of rhetoric. Stay with us. Continuing with our politics lead and the latest example of former President Donald Trump using what critics would certainly call racist dog whistles against his opponents. Trump now is using Nikki Haley's given first name, Nimarada, although he spelled it wrong, in a Truth Social post attacking her speech after the Iowa caucuses. She's gone by her middle name, Nikki, since she was a kid. Haley is, of course, the daughter of Indian immigrants to the United States. She was born Nimarada Nikki Rondawa. She took her husband, Michael Haley's last name after they married. Uh, joining us now is Illinois Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, also Indian American, if you could not tell. Uh, Congressman Krishnamurthy, obviously you disagree with Nikki Haley on any number of issues, um, but I thought that you could provide some insight into this because you're Indian American. You've told me that you have faced similar kinds of taunts. Um, what do you think Donald Trump is trying to gain by calling Haley Nimarada and by falsely suggesting uh, that she's not eligible for the presidency? 
Well, I think he's trying to, it's, it's, it's a put down, it's, a, it's racist and reprehensible. Um, I hope that my Republican colleagues, more of them, would call, call him out for what he's doing. But I think that ultimately he's also trying to appeal to certain elements of his base that would respond to this type of thing. And that's, uh, of course, unacceptable. At the end of the day, I think that the American people uh, will reject this. But uh, right now, I think Donald Trump sees this as a tactic for political advantage, and I hope that others call him out for it. What was it like uh, growing? Did you grow up in Illinois? I know you represent Illinois, but wherever you grew up, was it tough being Raja Krishnamurthy? I, I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, and then moved to Chicago later on in life. But, uh, you know, it was not tough. I mean, Peoria is a place that, where people... Um, really embraced uh, our family and, and my background. Um, and later in life, of course, uh, you start to realize some of those, um, uh, those types of things that Nikki Haley is going through. Uh, but the you, try to, you also get a sense of humor uh, dealing with it. Uh, when I introduced myself in Chicago, I said, hi, my name is Raja Krishnamurthy, and the person said, Roger Christian Murphy, nice to meet you. So that's the type of thing that happens often, too. But what Donald Trump did, of course, the intentional denigration of someone based on their ethnicity, I mean, that's very hurtful, obviously, and, and something that we all have to call out, even though we may not be of the same political party. Trump also is pushing this uh, falsehood that Haley is ineligible to run for president, supposedly because her parents, who are immigrants from India, were not U.S. citizens at the time she was born. That's crap. It's not true. Uh, Haley was born in Bamberg, South Carolina. She's a U.S. citizen. She's completely eligible for the presidency. And this, this is not unlike when Donald Trump first really, in the modern era, burst onto the political scene by pushing this racist lie that Barack Obama was not eligible because Barack Obama was born in Africa, which is obviously not true. That's exactly right. And he's done the same thing with Kamala Harris as well. And um, there's some weird political theory in certain extreme right-wing circles that you can't be a natural-born citizen, even if you're born on American soil, to immigrants. And that is just unacceptable. Um, but all that being said, I think Donald Trump knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that what he's saying is false, but he's trying to both put her down and trying to curry favor with this white supremacist base, which I think, again, most Americans would reject. So I have you on the show often to talk about legislation, and you work hand in hand with a number of Republicans on legislation. You're very bipartisan. You have to be because Republicans are in the majority. But even when you were in the majority, uh, you, you also worked with Republicans. What do they tell you behind the scenes about why they don't call this out? I think some of them are fearful. I think that they uh, fear that going after Donald Trump will invite a counterattack uh, and then problems with their base. I think others are you know, cynical about it, too. I think they know that other folks will call him out for it, people like Mitt Romney and so forth, and they don't need to. Um, and I wish that more of them would, because this type of thing, as you know, is, is dangerous for our democracy, and it sometimes results even in violence. Um, and so we've got to call it out every time we can, stand shoulder to shoulder with Jews who face anti rising anti-Semitism, Muslims who fi face rising Islamophobia, Hindus who face increasing bigotry, and of course Indian Americans like Nikki Haley.
CNN's Manu Raju is reporting that Trump uh, might try to scuttle this possible compromise bill on immigration. There's this big effort in the Senate to come up with a, a compromise in immigration, which actually would, would be, I think, um, more conservative legislation than I've ever seen Democrats get behind before when it comes to immigration. And some Republicans in the Senate are saying, you know, take the deal. But Trump rallying against it, et cetera, do you think that there's any chance this is actually going to happen? I hope. I hope that we come to some compromise uh, on this particular issue because we have to have, obviously, order at the border. But on the other hand, when I talk to some Republicans privately, what they tell me is that um, some folks want to leave it as an election issue. They want this to be something that Donald Trump can run on. And so even if Democrats were to compromise, um, put forward a reasonable suggestion for what to do at the border, they won't take yes for an answer. I'm talking about Republicans. And so that, that, that would be uh, very, very disturbing. And um, I hope that's not where this ends up. Because as you know, Ukrainian aid is also in the balance. So is aid for Israel. So is aid for uh, the Gaza Strip. All right, Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy uh, of Illinois. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. We have some breaking news for you now on the U.S. Supreme Court and Donald Trump's legal team filing its first brief in a 14th Amendment case. Let's get right to Paula Reed. Uh, Paula, what do you got? So this is former President Trump's brief going before the Supreme Court in that major ballot eligibility case. This is their appeal of the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to remove Trump from the ballot because they believe that he engaged in an insurrection. Now. This, this is interesting, this brief, because it's expanding on the arguments that they've made previously, but I know from speaking to sources in and around his legal team that they're going to go much further, mostly because they have a higher word count here. But the first thing that strikes me is their question presented. The Supreme Court has not made it clear exactly which questions they are going to entertain in this case. But the Trump team has phrased this very broadly. They're just saying, look, the question before the court should be, did the Colorado Supreme Court in ordering President Trump excluded from the 2024 presidential primary ballot. And that is significant, Jake, because I'm told they want to give the Supreme Court the opportunity to decide this as broadly as is humanly possible. They're basically letting the Supreme Court choose its own adventure in terms of how it decides this case. Now, other briefs that have been submitted uh, laid out more specific questions, but here they're leading, leaving it very general. I've only gotten through the first few pages, but they're saying that the Colorado Supreme Court had a, quote, dubious interpretation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And we know, of course, that section of the 14th Amendment is at the heart of this controversy, right? Did they intend, right, this ban on insurrectionists to apply to presidents? Well, we've seen even courts within the state of Colorado come to different answers on that point. And here they're asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on this issue and provide clarity. As we know, this is an issue that is now being litigated across the United States. And if the Supreme Court can weigh in on this critical constitutional question, that could give some clarity to all the states and, of course, the candidates as well. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Let's bring in CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Joan, what do you make of Trump's filing here? Sure. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Just looking at the summary, Jake. 
it echoes what uh, the key points from his um, petition to even get the Supreme Court to agree to hear the case. He starts off by saying he's not an officer covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That's the, the provision that says that any officer who has um, taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and then who engages in an insurrection uh, should be barred from future office. And, you know, one of the key points he makes in this filing, as he did in his petition to the justices, is that the president is not an officer, so it's not covered that way. The other thing he says, his second point is that uh, President Trump did not, former President Trump did not engage in any kind of insurrection, so he would not be covered by that provision. And then finally, uh, uh, another key point uh, in the summary of his argument is that uh, this this provision, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that would bar someone from holding office who had engaged in an insurrection, doesn't stand on its own. It has to be, uh, it has actually has to be enforced through some sort of congressional legislation. It, it, it isn't, uh, to use a phrase that has been used before, uh, it's not self-executing. So hitting the main points, points that are being reinforced as we speak, by others who are filing briefs on the president's behalf today, today being the deadline. So this is, he's using the main points that he started with going forward with this. And then in about 10 days, we'll see what the Colorado voter side uh, does to counter these arguments, Jake. Very interesting. Joan Biskupic, thank you so much. When we come back, we're gonna to talk to our political panel about all the day's political news. We're gonna squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. And we are back with our 2024 lead. We just heard about some of the dog whistles Trump's being Trump's using to attack Nikki Haley. He's also using another line of attack uh, from his playbook, attacking some of the very best people that he picked to work in his administration. Take a listen to this. Nikki Haley is a disaster. She worked for me for a long time. I mean, I know it very well. I figured if I took her out of South Carolina governorship, put her someplace, any place, I put her someplace, then Henry McMaster, who is my friend and who's turned out to be a great governor in South Carolina, Henry McMaster will become the governor. So I moved her to the United Nations. And honestly, she was not a good negotiator. Haley's campaign appears to have anticipated those attacks. They released this video yesterday. I like Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley. Mm. I think Nikki's going to do a good job. Great job. And I want to also thank your former governor, Nikki Haley, who's doing an awfully good job for us. She's representing America very well as our ambassador to the United Nations. She is doing a spectacular job. Let's bring in the political panel, South Carolina's Bakari Sellers and Scott Jennings. Thanks to both of you. Bakari, uh, Haley has wanted a two-person race against Trump. Um, did you think she needs to sharpen her attacks? She definitely has to sharpen her attacks. But one of the things that Nikki Haley can do is actually take the attacks. I mean, uh, Jake, this is, this is South Carolina. I mean, our politics are rough and tumble. And many times people don't make it to the national level just because of how how dirty our politics are. I mean, Nikki Haley has seen everything. I mean, we've, you know, I, I actually was on the ticket against her in 2014. I remember when she ran for governor in 2010. I mean, she uh, was called all types of, uh, of derogatory names by former uh, state senators. Uh, people posted pictures of her uh, parents in their native garb. They, they uh, picked on her for her religion um, or, the, or her former religion. 
they talked about her by her first name. I mean, they did all of the things uh, that you would imagine they would do to a candidate in South Carolina. And she was able to beat back all of those things. And so I don't think any of the attacks Donald Trump is going to launch, the racism, the xenophobia are going to work. But she does have to sharpen her attacks against him so that there is some space between the candidates. Scott, Ron DeSantis has pretty much uh, waved the white flag of surrender here in New Hampshire. He's going to focus on South Carolina. Uh, DeSantis was asked today by Hugh Hewitt if he plans to stay in the race through March. This is what DeSantis had to say. My goal is to is, is to win the, win the nomination. I don't want to be VP. I don't want to be in the cabinet. I don't want a TV show. Uh, I'm 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 in it to win it. And at some point, you know, if that's not working out for you, like I re- I recognize that this isn't a vanity thing for me. But I do believe that uh, you know we have an opportunity in November uh, to do very very well. Hugh Hewitt followed up by pressing DeSantis on whether he has the resources and staff. To compete through March, DeSantis said 100 percent. But but Scott, it, it seems as though there might be some magical thinking happening here, right? Well, certainly it's long shot thinking. I mean, first of all, I think DeSantis has been a pretty good candidate the last couple of months. But when you look at what happened in Iowa, when you look at the polling and you just look at Donald Trump's raw job approval among Republicans, not necessarily independents, uh, some of whom may vote in New Hampshire, but just among Republicans, he's very popular. And so uh, if he keeps racking up victories uh, like I expect him to do in New Hampshire and like he could do in South Carolina, uh, it's hard to make a a reasonable uh, uh, claim that you could stay in the race if you just keep losing states. So it strikes me that uh, Haley's Alamo is New Hampshire. Uh, DeSantis is maybe South Carolina. If someone gets lucky and beats him in a state, the ball keeps bouncing and then you go from there. All right. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. The conversation continues in the CNN town hall tonight with Governor Nikki Haley. I'm going to moderate this discussion between Governor Haley and the voters here in New Hampshire. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN and streaming on CNN Max. Coming up, CNN looks into why the Israel Defense Forces have been targeting cemeteries in Gaza, including a major new discovery of bodies that the IDF exhumed from one of those cemeteries. And those remains were sent back to Israel. Stay with us. Back with our world lead yesterday, we brought you the news of Israeli strikes uh, disturbing a Gaza cemetery. Today, we are learning likely why that happened. CNN's Jeremy Diamond has been investigating this. Jeremy, this, this isn't the first time the IDF has targeted cemeteries. Tell us more. That's right, Jake. Today, the Israeli military acknowledged that they rolled into a cemetery, took bodies out of graves as part of what they say is a search for Israeli hostages remains. But as the Israeli military put out that statement, we were completing our investigation into the Israeli military's desecration of cemeteries. And what we found is 16 cemeteries across Gaza damaged or destroyed. I do want to warn our viewers that they may find some of these images disturbing. In Gaza, even the dead cannot escape the indignities of war. More than a dozen cemeteries like this one in Jabalia, desecrated by the Israeli military. Gravestones destroyed, soil upturned, tread marks leaving little left for the living to honor their dead. This is that same graveyard before the war. One month later, a series of tread marks can be seen on the northwestern edge. It is no exception. 
A CNN analysis of videos and satellite imagery found that 16 cemeteries have been damaged or destroyed by the Israeli military since it launched its ground offensive. As Israeli forces push deeper into Gaza, they crush the graves of thousands of Palestinians between November and January. Janina Dill, co-director of Oxford University's Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, says destroying graveyards violates international law, except under very limited circumstances. Cemeteries are not military objectives. They are, in fact, what international law would consider a, an object that is normally dedicated to civilian purposes, like places of worship generally. So this is protected from intentional attack. It can only be intentionally attacked or destroyed if it becomes a military objective. In some cases, like this cemetery in the Shuja'iya refugee camp, Israeli bulldozers turn cemeteries into military outposts, parking armored vehicles behind freshly raised berms. The damage is often deliberate and progressive. Over two weeks in December, the military bulldozed more and more of this cemetery east of Khan Yunus, building defensive fortifications. CNN witnessed firsthand the results of Israel's bulldozing of graveyards while embedded with Israeli forces last week. The armored personnel carrier CNN was traveling in drove right through this cemetery in Al Burej on a freshly bulldozed dirt road. And then there's this. Tombs opened at a cemetery in Khan Yunis this week. Bodies removed from their graves. In a statement, the Israeli military acknowledged exhuming bodies from the cemetery as part of its search for the bodies of Israeli hostages. An IDF spokesman could not account for the damage to the 16 cemeteries identified by CNN, but said that in some cases there is no other choice, providing this photo of what it says is a Hamas rocket launcher at a cemetery in Gaza. CNN could not independently verify where it was taken. The spokesman could not account for the military posts over graveyards, but said we have a serious obligation to the respect of the dead, and there is no policy to create military posts out of graveyards. In at least one case, the Israeli military appears to have taken pains to maneuver around a graveyard. The Deir el-Balah War Cemetery, which holds the remains of many Christian and Jewish soldiers from World War I, left intact, despite devastation all around. <laughs> At the Al-Tufa Cemetery, a very different picture. Residents say bodies were uprooted by Israeli bulldozers. <laughs> We're currently retrieving the corpses of the martyrs that are present in the cemetery. The occupation forces have run over most of them with their bulldozers, and we've only identified a small number of corpses and martyrs. As for the rest, their identities remain unknown. South Africa cited Israel's destruction of cemeteries as part of its case, arguing Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. Israel denies the allegation, but experts say cemetery destruction could be evidence of Israel's intent. There is huge symbolic meaning to the notion that not even the dead are left in peace. Um, it suggests that disrespect towards the kind of spiritual life of your enemy, their cultural property and heritage, it's an evidence of an animus against your enemy that, that is unhelpful in this context. The Israeli military is still desecrating graves in Gaza. <laughs> At the Han Yunus Cemetery, where the military dug up bodies this week, the damage is extensive and all too familiar. 
Tombs destroyed, shrouded bodies sticking out of the soil, the dead roused from their final rest. And the Israeli military pointed to Hamas using some of these cemeteries for military purposes to uh, justify uh, what we've documented here. But what we're talking about isn't just strikes on these cemeteries. In some cases, it's the bulldozing of entire cemeteries, putting military outposts there, heavy armored vehicles driving right through the graves, uh, showing very little care for the dignity of the dead. It speaks to something far more systematic than what the military acknowledged. Jake. All right, CNN's Jeremy Diamond in Israel for us. Thank you so much. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia proposed a plan for what should happen in Gaza if and when the war between Israel and Hamas ever ends. But the Israeli prime minister is not on board. Hear what he had to say about it next. More now on the Israel-Hamas war in our world lead. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has turned down a U.S.-Saudi proposal that would have normalized relations with Saudi Arabia and Israel in exchange for Israel agreeing to provide Palestinians with a pathway towards statehood. Today, Prime Minister Netanyahu was asked about the rejected proposal, first reported by NBC. Listen. With or without agreement, the, Israel, the state of Israel must control security between the Jordan River to the sea, and, and it clashes with the sovereignty idea. And I'm telling our American friends, I stopped a reality which would have hurt the security of Israel. The prime minister of Israel should have the ability to say no even to our greatest friends when it has to. Joining us now, former Israeli consul general in New York and columnist for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, Alon Pincus. Mr. Pincus, good to see you as always. Uh, the U.S. is set on a workable two-state solution, and this afternoon a U.S. official said they don't take Netanyahu's statement as, quote, the final word on this matter. Do you think that the Biden administration is being naive? Yeah, I do, unfortunately. Um, I, and I've been, you know, I've been saying this uh, for two and a half, almost three months. Uh, Netanyahu has set a deliberate collision course with Biden. Not only is he an ingrate, but he's doing it for his uh, uh, political purposes. He wants, he wants to blame Biden for not achieving the goals which could not have been attained anyway. Um, and, and this is him, you know, this is him on brand. He's been doing it with Clinton in 98. He's been doing, he, he did it again with Obama in 2015. And now he's taking something uh, far more serious because what the Saudis, the Qataris and the Emiratis and the Americans are saying, Jake, is something that Israel dreamt about for decades. That is normalization and a regional peace in exchange for a uh, silver lining for the Palestinians. And he's flatly saying no for political reasons and no other substantive reason. What are President Biden's options here, do you think? Well, I, look, President Biden's support for Israel was genuine, was, was uh, visceral, uh, was real, and, and it is ongoing. So I understand that he finds it somewhat difficult sentimentally, emotionally, even politically, to pivot. 
But he ha- he does have options to force Netanyahu uh, uh, um, to change his mind or indeed to uh, bring about an election in Israel. I mean, this Palestinian state issue is, is nonsense. It's not imminent. It's not feasible. It's not on the table. The U.S. is delineating or crafting a, a far-reaching uh, um, uh, futuristic framework. All Netanyahu had to do was say was, let's talk about it. So now Biden has three or four uh, um, options. He can call Mr. Netanyahu's bluff and say that he's not behaving like an ally, not behaving like, uh, um, you know, uh, like a friend and and not being part of this uh, um, axis of stability, opposing the axis of instability and chaos led by the Iranians, the Syrians and mentored by Russia. Second, he can threaten to uh, um, vote for or abstain in a UN uh, Security Council resolution on a ceasefire. Uh, third, he could do something which I'm sure his political um, advisors would tell him not to, and that is come to Israel, come to the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, and speak above Mr. Netanyahu's head, the same way that Mr. Netanyahu tried to do to Obama over the Iran deal in March 2015. The fourth thing mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. the worst of all options is conditioned military aid. I hope it doesn't get to that. Alan Pincus, thank you so much. Uh, really uh, appreciate your, your observations at this point. Uh, we'll have you back again soon. I'll be back here tonight at 9 p.m. sharp Eastern, live from New Hampshire for the CNN Town Hall uh, with Governor Nikki Haley. She's going to take questions directly from New Hampshire voters tonight in this very room. This is happening just five days before next week's primary, and you can watch the CNN Town Hall tonight on CNN and streaming on CNN Max. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you in roughly three hours. Here's Wolf. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.